Amen. Good morning. Good morning, Dana. If you would, please turn to Mark chapter 10. Be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Got a question for you? It wasn't a question you were probably expecting to be asked. Here it is. How high can you count? How far would you get if you started counting? Right now, Noah can count his tens pretty well. He can count up to 10 and gets to 20, and all of a sudden it becomes 29 and 2010 and 2011 and keeps going. Uh, but uh, I remember being young and counting up to 100 and being proud that I could count up to 100. And, and, uh, today, we're going to talk about a number that is so high that none of us are old enough to count to. And we're going to talk about a number that's so high that the youngest person in this room, if they started counting right now, would never reach in this lifetime. We're going to be talking this morning about the number of eternity. How much is in eternity? Although none of us could count that high, all of us are going to experience eternity. In our text today, we're going to meet a young man asking Jesus about his eternal home and what it takes to get there. So let's read our passage in Mark chapter 10, verse, 10, uh, verse 17 down to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
how confused and misguided we would be without your word. Lord, thank you for speaking clearly to the matters of our heart and speaking right to our checkbook, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would help us as we think through this passage. I pray that you would free us from any idolatry, that you would help us to be faithful stewards and a generous people, and that you would give us joy first and foremost in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a couple weeks to work through this passage. I was planning on just one week here, but then I started working into it and realized there's just so much here. So we'll spend a few weeks here. Um, but for what we'll focus on today, I think the main point for us would be that we would not let wealth keep us from following Christ wholeheartedly. Don't let wealth keep you from following Christ wholeheartedly. We'll look first at the call to, to put Christ over money, and then that we would not try the impossible. Don't try the impossible. Let's look first at putting Christ over our money. Uh, last week, Kevin led us through Jesus' call to let the children come to him. Uh, and there we see also the call to, to receive the kingdom like a little child. What a helpful reminder that was to our church family, that we want to be a people who reflect Jesus' heart, that we would have love for children like he does. Uh, and also the call to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Now, if you missed that sermon, you can go online and find it there. You can listen to it like I did there. Uh, and in our text this morning, we see someone interested in receiving the kingdom. There's their call to receive the kingdom like a child. Here is somebody who's interested in receiving it. But as it turns out, he misses the mark on receiving it like a child. Our text tells us that this man is rich. In Matthew 19, it says that he's young. Many young people haven't made their money yet, and many rich people have spent their youth getting those finances. But this guy, he's got it all, and he's got it now. He's got his youth, and he's got riches. Luke chapter 18, parallel to this, notes that he is a ruler, and that he's probably a ruler of a synagogue, so he's often called the rich young ruler when you put all those things together. This man uh, has it all put together, it seems. Socially and religiously, he is probably highly regarded. Uh, and this man runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. He, he gets down on his knees before Jesus. You know, that's a real sign of honor from somebody who's so respected in the community. And he asks Jesus such an important question. It says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds in a puzzling way. He questions the man's assumptions. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, some have suggested here that, well, see, Jesus right here is saying that he's not God. Uh, well, that certainly misses Jesus' point altogether. Uh, instead, Jesus is bumping into this guy's assumptions. He is pressing on this guy a bit. Uh, and in doing that, he's actually assuming Jesus himself, he is good. Uh, he is God. Both of those are true of Jesus. But he's beginning to challenge this man a little bit because this man has some wrong thinking, as we'll see. The, uh, Jesus does go on to answer his question. Um, Jesus reminds this man of several of the Ten Commandments and additionally, the command not to defraud. Some have suggested that 
all these are Ten Commandments except for do not defraud, and maybe that's added in there because uh, he, being somebody of wealth and of authority, might have more of the temptation to defraud somebody than, than others. Uh, however, or why ever Jesus cites that there, he cites these commandments, and the man's response is clear and surprising. He says, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Now, that's a striking response. This man is probably a very pious man, but it also seems like he has a superficial understanding of sin. He has sought to live a righteous life, and by human standards, he's probably done a relatively good job of it. He's generally a good guy, and he has also shown a good deal of respect to Jesus. He has certainly a very different heart than the Pharisees. Remember, as we've read through here, the Pharisees, as they come to Jesus to try to trap him and to condemn him. He's not doing that. Uh, but the fact that he's generally good and that he's generally favorable towards Jesus, that alone doesn't mean that his heart is in the right place. Uh, Jesus sees a problem in this man's heart that's going to require intensively invasive surgery. Jesus is going to operate on this man's heart. And the most direct path to it is going to be through his wallet. So Jesus preps the patient and tells him about the needed procedure. Uh, but before he breaks the, the news to this man, uh, we don't want to miss something in the text here. Notice, it says here that Jesus looks on him and he loves him. Uh, he loves this man. Jesus has love for him. Uh, many times we see that Jesus has compassion on somebody, and certainly that's love. But it's not as often that the passage says that he loves him. It says, says it that directly. Now, certainly Jesus did love uh, immensely and, and love so many. Uh, it's just it's not as common that it's reported like this. Uh, Jesus is not clobbering this guy because his heart's in the wrong place. Uh, he is approaching him with love. Further, Jesus is not some money grabber who's simply trying to court this man's favor in hopes of gain. I mean, it would be so much easier if Jesus said, you know, just, just come along and follow me. And maybe this guy could have financially provided for the ministry of Jesus. Maybe there could have been all sorts of things. But Jesus is going to actually confront him, uh, and, and as we'll see, this man's going to turn away. Uh, Jesus cares more about this man than he cares about his money. Jesus doesn't need his money. Uh, he cares about the heart and the life of this man. He looks on him and he loves him. And because of that, he takes out the scalpel. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus speaks to the deepest matters of this man's heart. And as it turns out, it's just too much. It says here that this man is deeply saddened. The word could even mean shocked. That he's shocked by what Jesus says to him. And he's filled with sadness. Uh, he has come to hear about the way to heaven from Jesus. But as it turns out, the price tag is just too much. Given the choice of eternal life and the good life, he has chosen a good life. He makes one of the saddest choices that we see in the Gospel of Mark. He chooses to save his wealth and lose his soul. With deep sadness, he walks away from Jesus. Uh, he, he walks away from the one who is eternal life himself. 
This, makes, this man makes a trade that is not worth it. He puts his wealth over Christ. And, you know, it's easy to look back 2,000 years later and see that he made a really foolish choice. Uh, it's easier to do that than to realize that we're all faced with the same choice in our lives. That, that we have to make that choice for ourselves. This passage, honestly, can make us uncomfortable. And it should. It is meant to. There are passages of Scripture that are meant to make us feel a little uncomfortable, right? Uh, one of the easy outs that we tend to give ourselves is we say, well, you know, he's probably far wealthier than me, so this is talking to a, a higher strata of finances than I'm in. Uh, but that's probably actually not true. Uh, as Americans in the West, uh, we are some of the wealthiest people that have ever walked this planet. The American middle class today enjoys luxuries that exceed what most previous generations could have even dreamed about. And part of that's technology and just the general prosperity that there is today. Uh, so, so we're not off the hook when we read this passage. We shouldn't give ourselves an easy out as we're thinking about this. And that puts us back to the question then, does this mean that Jesus is calling every single one of us to give away everything we have as, as our way of following him? Well, I think at the bare minimum, at a bare minimum, this passage is calling us to be willing to do that. I think that as followers of Christ, we should at bare minimum be willing to part with everything if that's what God calls us to. We should be at a place in our hearts where we can say, everything that I own is nothing compared to having Christ. If we could honestly say that we would never give up everything in following Jesus, and I think that that reveals that we have a heart similar to this man. And that's not the place we want to be. We don't want to put our wealth over Christ. We want to put Christ over our wealth and possessions. You know, and that really isn't so simple as either giving everything away or being like this man. In some ways, that would be simpler. Well, that's easy. Let's just give everything away and then we're in, in the right here. It's, well, it's really not that simple. Uh, the Bible calls us to be good stewards and to be generous when it comes to our possessions. Passages like Proverbs 6 are a warning and a rebuke to the lazy. Solomon says in Proverbs 6, you know, go check out the ant, you sluggard. Uh, nobody's cracking a whip over the ants, and yet they are gathering up for the fall. They are industrious, even though nobody's telling them what to do. Uh, Paul doesn't pull any punches when it comes to the idle and the lazy. In 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Wow. Uh, work is commended in Scripture as a good thing. And along with work comes the reward of good hard work. And that reward is good. Further, we see in passages like 1 Timothy 5.16 that we're called to provide for our families. Uh, providing for one's family is the minimum uh, of hard work and wise stewardship. It says 1 Timothy 5.16, But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, uh, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Uh, the Bible doesn't call us to live the life of a hippie on the beach, uh, owning no possessions. That's not the ideal life. Uh, there is a call for wise stewardship. We are called to provide for our families and maybe even our extended families. And if you're going to do that, it's going to require hard work. You need to be a wise steward of what God gives you. Paul in 1 Timothy 6.10, 
says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not money per se. A lot of times people say money is the root of all evil, but actually Paul says it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, it's not money per se that is the problem, but rather the love of money. Loving wealth points us away from loving God. You know, we want to, we wanna, our temptation is to try to have it both. I'll, I'll love God and I'll love my wealth. You know, well, as Steve pointed out, we'll, we'll follow that cow and we'll follow God for making our row straight. Uh, but it doesn't work that way. We're, we're going to have to make a choice. What's going to be fundamental? What's going to be first place in our heart? Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So although we have to work hard and steward our wealth, we must never set our heart and our hope on it. Our wealth must not be our security in this world. God alone should be our security. When we set our hope on our finances, we give wealth the throne of our hearts. We push God aside. Wealth is a poor God substitute. It cannot save us. Wealth is too fickle a God to be everything we need. Jesus has seen that this man is trusting in this false God. As he comes up to him, he asks him, Jesus sees that this man is setting his heart first and foremost on his wealth. And Jesus loves him. He doesn't want to leave him where he's at. Uh, he doesn't want to leave him with his trust in a false God. But this man cannot leave it behind. I mean, he does make such a foolish trade. Here's a, a good rule for us to follow. Never trade a countable number of dollars for an uncountable number of years in eternity. Never trade a countable number of dollars for an uncountable number of years in eternity. Earlier I mentioned a number that nobody could count to. Uh, no one is able to count up all the number of years that we will spend in eternity. Nobody can count that high. Uh, Pastor Scott works with people's money. It's part of his work. Uh, and so maybe he should be preaching this sermon. But uh, he has told me in the past that uh, some of the work that he does, he ends up dealing with people's estates and helping them sort through the estate. Uh, and in that process, there is a number of dollars that have to be divvied up and they're sent. They're allocated to go here or there. Uh, there are possessions that are owned and those get divvied up and they find their new home. Now, that, while that process might be long to wrap up, it sounds like it is from what he's described, uh, it does come to an end for every estate. There is a point when the last dollar has been apportioned and when the last item has found its new home. No matter how big an earthly estate is, at some point it's going to be divvied up, it's going to be sent, that last dollar is going to be sent out. Those dollars and items can be counted, even for the richest of people. Never trade that which can be counted for that which cannot be counted. Not only is wealth an inadequate God substitute, it is a pathetic trade for eternity. Although nobody can count the years of eternity, every single human being will experience it. We will all face eternity. Every man and every woman who's ever been conceived on this planet will find eternity. Eternity will come to them, whether that be with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. 
Never trade following Christ for following the supposedly almighty dollar. As those who have accepted Christ, is there anything in this text that would help us to fight against the idol of putting our hope and trust in money? I think there is. It's taught elsewhere in Scripture as well. Notice Jesus tells the man to sell everything he has and give to the poor. And in so doing, he will lay up treasure in heaven. The Christian virtue of generosity is a powerful tool in the fight against the idolatry of greed. Instead of storing it all up here, we should set our hearts on storing up in heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, 19-21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, if Jesus lived in a society like ours with a fiat currency, he probably would have added where inflation eats up your earnings. Uh, I would suggest, in light of this passage, that the greatest anti-inflationary move you can make is to be generous. You thought I was going to say buy silver and gold. Uh, well, that has its merits, but there's something even more secure. Nothing is as secure as God's keeping. Heaven is the most secure place to keep your wealth, and generosity is the method of deposit into that account. To steward, uh, we're called here then to steward well what God has given us and to be generous as we're able to. And in that, then we want to put Christ. That's how we put Christ over our wealth and Christ over our finances. Christ is a far better Savior than wealth ever can be. Let's look now more briefly at our second point. Uh, and I think we could summarize this call as, as don't try to do the impossible. Don't try the impossible. Uh, as this man leaves, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 23, it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if this rich man has been disheartened by Jesus' words, uh, perhaps we could say that Jesus' disciples were dismayed by his words. Uh, as they're still stunned, he lays it in thicker here. He says, children, how difficult it is, for, it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it was a typical understanding at that time that if somebody was wealthy, then it could safely be assumed that they were blessed by God. If somebody was born into wealth or achieved wealth, that was a sure sign that they had God's favor because God had blessed them in those material ways. Now, that's an erroneous way of thinking about it, but that's, that's, that was common at that time. Uh, Jesus flips that thinking on its head, and his, his disciples are really struggling to get it. Uh, to press the point further, Jesus uses an image that's kind of funny if you think about it. Uh, could you imagine trying to get a camel through the eye of your sewing needle? Uh, it ain't happening. No matter how hard you push on the rump of that camel, it is not going through that needle. As impossible as that scenario is, it's just that impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Now, we get so used to the sayings of Jesus that we can read right over it and keep moving on. But this is a shocking statement. Uh, it's not a surprise that his disciples are blown away by it. 
Um, they seem to throw up their hands in the air and say, well, then who can be saved? If even these people who seem to have everything going for them can't make it, then who can be? Who can be saved? Jesus understands the corner that he's backed them into, and so he shares light for them in that dark corner. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Yep, just as they think it is an impossible scenario. Uh, they're not wrong to see it that way. But with God, even salvation of the unsavable is possible. That's meant to give us hope as well. Josh read from Matthew 5 and Romans 3. Uh, we got to see there the abysmal condition of the human heart, the depth and reality of sin in the lives of every single human being. And it is after such a bleak picture that the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes so sweet. When God has been brutally honest with us about the condition of our heart and we receive that, that is when the, the beauty of salvation shines. That is when we are delighted in what God has done. When we see the darkness of where our hearts are at before God, that's when his way of escape is beautiful. That's when we look to him and see Christ as Savior. The truth is that the salvation of man is completely impossible by human strength. The disciples probably thought this guy was sure to make it. He had wealth, sign of God's favor. He was respected as a ruler in the synagogue. Uh, he was even quite friendly to Jesus. I mean, if anybody's going to make it, it's got to be this guy. And yet Jesus seems to indicate that he's not. Let me tell you, the best and the greatest and the most righteous in this world are not going to make it into heaven by their own righteousness. You know that. You could be well-raised, given every advantage, and with that good start, you could do your best your whole life long, even by biblical standards. You're still not going to make it unless your trust is 100% in Christ and 0% in yourself. We see this as Paul's own description of his own life in Philippians 3. He had everything going for him, but he, he counted that as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. The rich young ruler thought that he had kept the law from his youth, but he had no idea. At this very moment, he is failing miserably at the first commandment. First commandment that he would have no other gods, that, that there would be no other gods above the Lord. Uh, he is failing miserably at it. He is setting his heart and his affection on his wealth. If he really understood his true problem, he wouldn't have said that he's kept it all from his youth. Self-salvation is impossible for man. Even with the best unbeliever, he does not have what it takes to enter into heaven on his own. Now, some people really take offense at that. People think that if somebody is mostly good, God's really got to forgive them. You know, the, the French have a saying that God will forgive, it's his job. You know, that, the, the idea that, well, yeah, I mean, if somebody's at least generally trying or believes in something, then certainly they're going to make it. Well, that's just not the view of sin that the Bible gives us. Sin is not just a, a little bad and an otherwise good life. Uh, that's not the way the Bible talks about sin. I, maybe you could compare it to the idea of meat that's gone bad. You know, you get that beautiful steak, and maybe it sat on the counter for too long or something. You know, and you're wondering if it's good or not. Uh, I've... I have taken the gamble before on meat that I was pretty sure was fine, 
and live to regret it. Uh, sometimes when meat goes bad, you know it, right? It looks ugly, it smells ugly, it tastes ugly, you just, you don't, you wouldn't dream about eating it. And, you know, sin in people's lives like that sometimes. Sometimes somebody is living a life that is just obviously not seeking the Lord. Now, the more dangerous is when you see that cut of meat that doesn't look bad, it's not slimy yet, doesn't smell bad, but you're kind of wondering, what's going to happen if I eat that? I tell you what, if that steak is a little bad, you're going to end up sick. Uh, there are people all around us who, on the outside, they might look pretty good. Unfortunately, I have to say, sometimes some unbelievers look better than some believers in the way that they project themselves to the world around them. But if they haven't come to Christ, they're spoiled. They're not spoiled in the sense of spoiled rich, but they're rancid. That's the human condition. We must be restored by Christ. Uh, apart from Christ, uh, we, we have rot. It doesn't matter how good it looks. Uh, it's going to be the same end. So self-salvation is impossible, even for those who seem to have the best shot at it. If we're going to be saved, we have to be saved by another. And that's what Jesus came to do. We'll be seeing this in weeks ahead here. It is only the perfect righteousness of Christ in our place that can give us the certainty of heaven. I was talking with somebody just the other day and wrestling over certainty. How do, how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I, how do I know? I just know God's going to bring something up in the judgment uh, that, that from my life that's going to mean I'm, I'm going to have to go to hell. And so just laboring and talking and, and pointing to this reality, this, this is our certainty. If you want to have certainty that you will be in the kingdom of heaven with God forever, it's not by looking to anything in our lives. Uh, an honest look at our own lives knows that we have many things that will, will keep us back. But we look to Christ. We set our eyes on Christ. We set our complete hope on Christ. That he will speak for us. That he will be the one by whom we're judged. Uh, and it's through his righteousness that we're judged. He has taken our penalty upon himself. And he has given his righteousness to us. He has died for us. He has risen from the dead for us. He has ascended and he will return. And with that Jesus and that Savior and that Christ, salvation is possible. And for us, as we trust in him, salvation is secure. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to wonder what it's going to be like on the day of judgment to know if we're going to make it or not. We look to Christ. And when Satan points back to our lives and say, well, look what you did. Wow, look how you failed God here. Wow, look at how, what you did with your kids over here. Look at, look at your work life. And, and starts pointing out all these things. Uh, he wants to set us back to ourselves and putting our hope in ourselves. And maybe we did make it. We've got to look out from ourselves. We've got to look to the cross. We have to look to the one who on the cross took the record of our debts upon himself that we would be freed. That we would be saved. That's where we've got to look. And as we continue, somebody told me this before, the, the more we look to Christ in those times, the less Satan is going to want to rattle our, our cage because he knows we're looking to Christ. Don't try the impossible. Don't try to do this on your own. We, we must never stake our soul on something that we know will fail. Trust in Christ wholeheartedly.
and follow Christ wholeheartedly. Don't let wealth or pride or anything get in the way of following Christ with everything we have. I want to close with the words of Paul to the rich from 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Paul says, As for the rich in this age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may lay hold of that which is truly life. Next week we'll return and look at Peter's response and consider our lives in light of that. Well, if also will come to, to play and the men will prepare for